out. It's our weekly catch-up with the National Party's Denise Lee. Not quite sure what happened. Oh, the intro and outro got switched. I'm very sorry about that. Um, now, I did get some texts in. <laughs> I've been a good girl. Is she five? A little cold there, guys. Um... Now, that was Denise Lee with the National Party. We're going to have a quick break, and then I'll be right back with the recent cannabis legislation draft. Um, and as always, I'd love to know what you guys think. Tukupatu Yimai, text me on 5395. You guys always keep me entertained. Auckland's dam levels are the lowest they've been in decades, but you can help save the day. Cut your shower time to four minutes and become a water-saving superhero. Find out more at waterforlife.org.nz. Not all heroes wear capes, but they do make sure they wash full loads of laundry. To find out how you can be a water-saving superhero, fly to waterforlife.org.nz. And this is BFM. Now, Minister for Justice Andrew Little prefaced a release of this draft legislation on cannabis by saying it's important that all ed- uh, eligible voters have the opportunity to be informed about the upcoming referendums. The government is committed to providing impartial, unbiased information on the referendum and its process. The exposure draft cannabis legislation and control bill has been updated and includes details about how the cannabis market would work and the phased introduction of cannabis, starting with fresh and dried cannabis, cannabis plants and seeds. How the regulation of consumption premises work would work, the approvals process of cannabis products, which and which products would be prohibited licensing requirements, how the bill proposes to reduce young people's exposure to cannabis, and infringements and penalties. There will be no further updates to the bill made before the referendum, meaning this is the final product. You can make your decision based off of this information. Uh, In this update, it's been made clear that only fresh and dried cannabis, including plants and seeds, would be immediately approved for production and sale under the new regime. A new cannabis regulatory authority could later recommend edibles be approved as well, but not beverages or novelty products like gummy bears. The aim of this legislation is to control how cannabis is produced and supplied in New Zealand by limiting the amount of licensed cannabis for sale and controlling the potency of the product and making sure pricing balances the risk of Kiwis going 
to the market, going to the black market. A ban would put in place importing cannabis. Only licensed businesses will be able to import the seeds. The government also aims to separate business that can grow cannabis and produce products from those that sell it. The wording of this cannabis referendum question has also been confirmed as a straight yes or no question. Do you support the proposed cannabis legislation and control bill? Yes or no? And now, many of us may have already have set ideas about what we will be voting. However, it is important that we are all thinking about how this industry will operate in New Zealand, how different people will be impacted. Gonna have uh, Louis piece up next, um, who is revisiting the welfare system again this week, what it looks like in level three. Last week, I spoke with the Minister of Social Development, Carmel Cipolloni, to talk through some criticisms of our welfare system and changes that many groups have been advocating for for a long time. Now, as we move from level four lockdown and begin to consider a recovery period for those facing hardships from the impacts of COVID-19, the Child Poverty Action Group believes now is the time and the government has an opportunity in this upcoming budget to implement cost-effective measures that will forge a fairer society. I spoke with Georgie Craw, who is the Executive Officer at CPEG. She talked with me through the Ministry of Social Development's latest response from Tuesday and how children have been almost invisible in New Zealand's stance apart from education. We start with the challenges facing the government post-lockdown period as we move through Alert Level 3. So I think, you know, from a poverty or wellbeing perspective, the government needs to be really, really carefully thinking about how they're going to adequately support people who all of a sudden will be coming into contact with the welfare system. I think one of the really interesting things about this, like it's obviously heartbreaking, but what this kind of crisis shows is that it can be something completely out of your control. One life shot happens and you lose your job and you lose your you know, financial security and your financial independence and then your reliance on this kind of system that is, doesn't really work for you. You know, people in power and successive governments have actually neglected our welfare system to the point where it, it doesn't work for people and um, there's lots of kind of poverty traps in it. I just think that the government, I mean, ideally they would have already overhauled the welfare system, which they've promised to do, and they got some really good advice about how they should do that from the Welfare Expert Advisory Group 18 months ago. So if there was ever a time, it's now to actually make those changes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I had a chance to speak with um, Carnell Cipollone just last week. Uh, I talked with her through these criticisms and also just around their latest implementations, just around releasing their initiatives. In Level 3, there was an announcement, I believe, on Tuesday, which was just around what the Ministry for Social Development will be doing, um, such as implementing a Keep New Zealand Working online recruitment tool, 35 new employment centres around the country. How has the Child Poverty Action Group found the ministry's response? Uh, To be honest, it's just a bit underwhelming. The minister said um, in her press release around it that a lot of that work was already planned before the COVID-19 crisis happened and that that was part of their welfare overhaul work. But like creating a kind of online job seeker tool isn't actually overhauling the welfare system. And I think for people who, like the people who it's aiming to help, are people who have already been in long-term employment and probably are, um, you know, they have experience of that. They're probably already highly motivated and able to work. But before this crisis happened, more than half the people who receive a benefit, uh, they're either, they have a long-term health condition 
or they have a or a disability or maybe they're caring for someone who has a health condition or disability and so actually forcing those people into inappropriate work which um, takes them away from their families and maybe it's probably low paid and it's probably insecure and it probably doesn't have great hours for them or whatever like that's not a very good solution it's just kind of going to create more toxic stress and then also on top of that the way that the welfare system is set up people who are on a job seeker benefit can't earn they can I think it's like 80 or 90 dollars it's changed it depends on what kind of benefit you're on you can only earn up to that amount before your benefit is clawed back really uh, aggressively so there's that's a kind of trap for people to get into it. The feedback cycle is quite negative. So it would be great to be seeing some leadership from Minister Sepuloni about how they're actually going to fix the things that are stopping people from working in the first place rather than just duplicating another online tool. I mean, you know, it's fine, but it's not every, It's not going to solve the issue. Absolutely right. I mean, um, talking with Minister Sepuloni, um, she mentioned as well the Welfare Advisory Group that put in their recommendations, it was around 42 recommendations, um, and yeah. the Minister chose to take around up to three of those recommendations, which was, <laughs> feels like they should Yeah, be more and it's not the main ones, right? Like, the big problem is, like, the main recommendation on, <laughs> on the Welfare Expert Advisory Group was, at that cultural level, was to put dignity and respect back at the heart of the welfare system and a really big way to do that is also to ensure that people have a livable income so that they're not toxically stressed so that their children have all of the opportunities that they need to. So yeah, I mean the response to the Welfare Expert Advisory Group recommendations has been really, really bad in our opinion. It has. I mean even with the individualising the system around relationships, yeah. it was yeah. you know very critical time during this lockdown with people facing unemployment and so forth that um, it feels like it was a recommendation that could have been implemented. Um, and we have spoken about some of this, but, just, but I was just wondering uh, about um, policies around in-work uh, tax credit. Yeah, so at the, um, this is something that um, Child Poverty Action Group have been really active with for a very long time. Um, so essentially what happens is if what used to happen is if you're in paid employment, you could access this thing called the in-work tax credit, which is um, $72.50 a week, but you had to meet certain kind of um, hours of work. And so for a single parent, it was 20 hours, and for a couple, it was 30 hours combined. So there was this issue there around, well, it's actually harder for a single parent to find childcare to be able to work 20 hours, but it's much easier for a, for a couple to, to do 30 hours between them and you are only eligible for that if you're not on a main benefit. We've argued for a long time that it discriminates against children of beneficiaries. Apparently the aim of the in-work tax credit is to alleviate child poverty, but they use it as a work incentive, even though it's been found that it actually doesn't work as a work incentive at all, and in fact can have the opposite effect. Um, what they announced at the beginning of the lockdown was that they were going to take away that the work hours, that, that criteria, so that people who had lost work because of this COVID-19 crisis, they would still be able to access their in-work tax credit. So it's like taking our recommendation one step. But the really big problem is, well, that's fine for people who have maybe dropped their work down a little bit. But what about all of those people who were already out of work or who now find themselves completely out of work and actually do have to go on a benefit? It's such a double whammy when you lose your salary and then you also lose that $70 a week, which is actually a, a lot of money uh, for people who are living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, don't have our food in the pantry. Oh, yeah. No, that's a policy that just seems so poorly designed. And, you know, as you said, it, 
it took it one step, but it kind of left behind everyone else who, um, just because of the circumstance, might have already been affected or were even worsely affected. Um, from yeah, COVID. exactly. So, I mean, inherently, I think the main point to make about it is that it discriminates against children whose parents need income support, um, and that's not okay. You know, CPAG um, had a big court case around this before my time, but the higher courts in New Zealand agreed that the government could have a could have a work incentive, but did agree that it was discriminatory. Now, just another question. This is more around um, education. Under Alert Level 3, school doors are once again opening. Um, for the Child Poverty Action Group, what is your stance on children, some who have been experiencing or just started experiencing poverty under new circumstances. What is your stance on them returning to education? Yeah, good question. Um, obviously, as a group, we've been reflecting a lot on how children have been kind of almost invisible in the response, except in terms of education. So our goal is, is in, as a country, um, without any child poverty, where you know all children can flourish and they aren't kind of locked into, into poverty. In order to, to kind of do that, the main thing is making sure that their families are, are adequately resourced so that they can provide them with the opportunities to follow their talents and their um, interests and they can you know, make their lives what they want them to, to look like. And obviously education is a really big part of that and having access to quality education. So it's great that kids are going back to school. I love that, I, that idea because it's such a big part of what will provide children with the opportunities to thrive. And it also means that teachers and carers in schools often spot things that are going wrong with kids or things that might be that they don't have food or you know there's um, maybe some suggestion of of abuse or so that sometimes acts as a bit of a safety valve I guess so yeah it's great that that kids are going back to school but in terms of them experiencing poverty I guess what's clear and what became clearer in the period that we've just been through is that learning from home was a lot easier for some families than it was for others and a big part of that was around the access to digital devices and the internet some families just actually don't don't have that or maybe they have access to like one phone or something, you know, mum's phone will have um, the internet on it and they're trying to share it with, you know, three kids. Um, so like I was saying, the Ministry of Education in the schools, they did quite a lot of work around it, but um, we haven't really analysed it in depth yet. It's just, we've just kind of been in the eye of the storm, I guess. So I don't I don't want to comment too much on how successful that's been, but it's great that kids are going to be back at school. I think parents will be breathing a sigh of relief as well. Yeah, no, no, I absolutely understand. I mean, I, I was going to ask about, you know, what might have been the response or um, what has kind of been the effects of um, the Ministry of Education, you know, having implemented these these um, learning devices and, and, and so forth. Mm. But as you said, um, you can comment later when you, you've run some numbers and you've heard back. Um, this is just moving into another question now. I, I believe um, the Child Poverty Action Group, you have an event um, on the 15th of May um, this next month. Can you tell me a little bit around this? Yeah, with pleasure. Thanks for letting me. Um, so we're hosting our annual post-budget event, um, in the, yeah, as you say, on the 15th of May. And so um, generally we have these all around the country and um, experts come in and analyse the budget and um, we kind of provide a commentary on whether it's enough to improve child wellbeing in New Zealand. And uh, but because of all of the lockdown stuff, we're going to go online this year and we will have a discussion. Um, it's going to be hosted by the documentary maker Brian Bruce and um, the experts who are participating are really amazing. Um, we've got Dr. Matadi Howard, who is um, she's an academic and she's also a doctor at Tapakura Marae. From CPAG, we've got Susan St. John, one of our co-founders back in, nine, in the 1990s, and she's also um, an economics professor and speaks a lot about these issues. We have Andrea Black, 
who is from the Council of Trade Union, uh, she's the policy director and, and economist there. And then we also have Kylie Quince, the legal scholar, and she has expertise in Māori and the criminal justice system in Oranga Tamariki. So they're all really great. And um, you know, it's, it's free and it'll be um, live-streamed on the New Zealand Public Television website at 11am on um, May the 15th. And so you can get all of the details on our website or on our Facebook page. Fantastic. Oh, that's... Um, I'd love to see people there. Sounds like an awesome event. And I, um, as, as you said, some of those speakers, um, Andrea Black, Susan St. John, um, I have spoken to them. They're fantastic. So it'd be really awesome to hear from them and also um, the CPAG just around this event. Well, I'll probably have to tune in for the live stream then. Um, Georgie, did you just have any final thoughts or any um, further comments as we move into Level 3 and for the future of the welfare system? I just think it's so important like that the government has this child on youth wellbeing strategy. I just want to see more evidence that it's actually informing the, like, the values and principles and it's such a great document, but how are they using that in their response? How are they centering children? How are they making sure that child poverty do- doesn't you know, get completely out of hand in New Zealand? Um, yeah, like we just want all children to be able to flourish. We want them to have all of these opportunities. And we have this kind of opportunity to create a new world and it can be fairer and it can be kinder. And hopefully the government pick that up and run with it. It would be such a pity if they didn't. That was Louis Laws talking with Georgie Craw from the Child Poverty Action Group. They will be holding a post-budget brunch event online uh, on the 15th of May, providing commentary from a team of experts, and it will be live streamed. And you can register for that event uh, on their website. That is cpag.org.nz. A couple texts we got in before we take a break. Um, firstly, welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, secondly, yesterday, Lillian should, uh, Lillian asked, should the wire be extended to two hours? And it received, uh, one vote from the amazing Grizzy. And I just wanted to say, yes, I believe it should be two hours as well. We've got a second vote. So hopefully our higher ups are listening into that. Uh, second text we got in here, uh, it is from the wonderful, amazing Benny from Hard and Fast Heavy Show. Um, he said, uh, miss you guys, love you all the pieces. Um, now, Denise, she sounded like an utter idiot. I refuse to feel bad for these dipshit landlords. Why don't they cut down on coffees and takeaways? They national imbeciles should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Again, miss you guys. Thank you for the texts. Uh, quick break, and then we'll be right back talking about mental health first aid. How do I use up all these tin tomatoes? And what do I get mum for her 60th? Advice for sneaking out of RMV? If I need to convince my bank that I'm Dead, right, but no, hear me out. It's like, no, it's like, for real, it's really legit. Need advice? Crowdsource it. That's right, it's back. The Tip Jar, every Friday on Drive with Johnny and Big Hungry. They ask a question and you get to see if you've got the top tip. Tip Jar, thanks to Cosmic, cosmicnz.co.nz. Do you ever think about space? How it's just, you know, so unknowable and awesome? I guess so. I guess I get confused about what's still a planet. I know, right? And the stars, the insignificance of, like, us. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, speaking of space, Mm -hmm. I'm the only person on this whole bus. You don't need to sit right here on my lap. 
Sorry, I was thinking about the cold, unknowable void. Space down. David Britton from Auckland Stardome Observatory and Planetarium talks everything spacey on Spaced Out every other Tuesday on 95 BFM Drive. Last Christmas, me and my family got into a conversation around mental health. I personally am someone who suffers with multiple mental illnesses and have struggled with comorbidity from a very young age, so conversations around this are not uncommon for me. Now, I made a point saying this Christmas that it hasn't been easy. Figuring out how to cope with mental illness has given me a huge array of tools, though, um, for various situations in my life. Many people may struggle later in life and not have those tools to cope. And particularly amongst COVID-19, it may present new situations for mental health for many people. Some have really enjoyed lockdown, um, being able to step away from the noise of everyday life, while others have found it anxiety-inducing, and experts say we could see some people develop PTSD from this pandemic. I spoke with co-founder of Colibrate, a mental health first aid organization, Sarah Tuck, to figure out what kind of things we may want to keep in mind while finding support at this time and providing support at this time. She started off by telling me exactly what mental health first aid is. Mental health first aid is the um, support given to someone in a moment of distress. Um, as a mental health first aider, you are supporting um, the person to help figure out what support looks like for them in that moment and then help them access that support in the moment. Also mental health first aid, you don't necessarily have to be in distress, but if you're seeking support or seeking something, mental health first aiders have a conversational framework to help you understand what support looks like for you. Mm. It's um, interesting in how you talk about that as someone finding out what support looks like for them. Why is that important? I think support looks different for everyone and there's a lot in the media and in social media around what self-care is and what it looks like um, and I don't think that we can prescribe what support is for people. I think it's really personal and unique. Um, some people see going for a run as a form of support. I don't see that as a form of support. <laughs> um, but I do see other things as a form of support. And I think the ability to give people permission to explore what that looks like for them really does make people feel in control of um, helping themselves feel better. Mm. Um, so that's kind of one of the pitfalls we see in the way we talk about mental health as like a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, do you think there are other kind of pitfalls in the way we discuss mental health? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, one size fits all, but there's also like we've seen mental health as a bin as a binary. Like there's mental illness. Um, you're either unwell or you're well. And what we know of mental health is that it's not that black and white. There's a huge grey area. Mental health is a whole continuum, and you can be in some moments thriving in your life, and in some moments feel distressed and there's anything in between as well. Um, um, and you can, yeah, on any given day, depending on what your environmental factors are, um, you can, yeah, you can appear anywhere along that continuum. Your mental health can 
be anywhere along that continuum, and that's okay. Um, support is possible at any point of how you're feeling along the continuum. Even at thriving, we still need supports to help us keep ourselves there. COVID-19 presents a lot of challenges for people. Um, many mental health professionals have said that some people might um, potentially develop PTSD from this entire situation. Um, what do you think we should do in the public, just in general? What should we be looking out for to support those around us? When, when we talk about resilience, we talk about the ability to cope. And what I know about resilience is that it's really difficult to be resilient when you're in isolation or when you are feeling isolated. I believe that for our ability to get through COVID-19 and to cope through it, we have to be, we have to feel connected to the people around us and we have to feel connected and we have to not be isolated and alone in what we are experiencing. Making a choice to connect with one another, choosing to be kind to each other, even though at the moment it's really hard. I guess a lot of us are feeling cabin fevery, stuck inside. Um, little frustrations, little domestic things are causing us to feel really, really irritated. Um, it can be really easy to lash out on the people around us. I think we have to choose to be kind to each other. The way forward is connection. Um, otherwise, it's just going to disconnect us further and make us feel more isolated. Mm. Also understanding that... Um, yeah, we are all in this together. We are all experiencing a pandemic together, but we all have different experiences of this pandemic and no two experiences are exactly the same. I think saying things like, I know what you're going through, doesn't always help <laughs> because you can't always know exactly what someone is going through. Um, you may be in a similar environment and situation, but their feelings, their experience of that can be completely different and it's about choosing to really listen and um, understand and hear people without putting your perspective or judgment on top of that. Now, your organization um, works quite closely with uh, different workplace settings. Yeah. Um, why does uh, this support within the workplace play a crucial role right now? I believe that um, employers have a responsibility to support their staff. Um, or create the um, environment within their workplace that staff can um, thrive and do their work. <laughs> I mean, ultimately do their work, but we spend a lot of time at work um, and there's a huge expectation that support is outside of the workplace. Um, but outside of the work, we have, yeah, where's the time between if, we're, if a lot of us are working nine to five? Outside of those hours, a lot of health professionals don't operate um, it's not actually possible to have the same access to supports. I think also workplaces are beginning to understand that when people feel supported, um, they are more pro productive. When they feel connected, they are more productive and they do good work and they're able to innovate and think beyond their roles um, and um, show more initiative. Even, even as a staff member myself in many workplaces, seeing... Um, ways in which the organisation wants to support me do well makes me invest more into that workplace because I feel they care about me and I think that's really important to feel cared for. 
I guess also with this conversation, um, we are likely going to see a rise in unemployment. Is that something your organization has in mind going forward with mental for, uh, mental health first aid? Yeah, I'm definitely aware of um, the, I guess, the privilege of having a workplace at this time. And for us being a social enterprise, we're looking at ways that um, we can provide training to people who aren't attached to a workplace, getting other workplaces to fund the people who um, are doing the support work all the time but don't necessarily have a place to do it or are doing it a lot in their families or in their communities. So we um, support people who yeah, aren't attached to a workplace too, which is cool. So around you know, up to eight or 10,000. Shit. The wire. That was Sarah Tuck from Collaborate. Um, a reminder to reach out when we are needing that support or if we are feeling the pressures of providing support. Um, 0800 Lifeline if you need it. There is also Youthline, a range of sources. Please reach out if you need to. Um, we did get a couple texts in that I'll read before our lovely poll position. Uh, I have two votes in favor of an extended two-hour uh, wire. Thank you for the votes. Um, Denise Lee, uh, someone says, Denise Lee, please acknowledge National Party inadequacies when in government that impact us now. Fair comment. Uh, and I will save this one for our poll position. Um, freedom of speech, it means you have to listen to me. It's time to have your say. Pole position on The Wire. That's right, we're back for another segment of Pole Position. Our question for the week, has your mental health been impacted by COVID-19? If you have any more thoughts, please text them in now, but uh, I'll just jump into it while we can. Um, our results at the minute, 58.8% say yes, and 41.2% say no. They haven't felt those impacts. Now, one person on Twitter wanted to respond to this. This is David Hay. He said, yes, but positively. Working from home, able to cycle 